Do you have a tough challenge with your supply chain or logistics? Loguru is the intelligent partner that works globally with manufacturers, retailers and logistics businesses. We help our customers define, buy and safely implement solutions across the supply chain. If you want a more sustainable future for your supply chain, visit loguru.co.uk. Complete end-to-end satisfaction guaranteed. Coming up in this episode. Well, I also think you've got to put the generational slice on it, right? If you're talking about the future, we're talking about sort of a shift in demographics, right? The younger generations, you know, they're putting an emphasis on a lot of different things than the old folks do, right? The Logistics Collective podcast is a series focused on the logistics industry, where there are many incredible stories to be told. We'll be speaking with those who've worked and are working within the industry today. What have been their experiences, good and bad, since joining? And would they recommend a career? Here in the industry to others. Here's your host, Malcolm Pope. Hello and welcome to the fourth and final episode of the Logistics Collective podcast on old dogs, our exploration of the history and the future of e-sourcing of logistics. In our last episode, we spoke about collaboration and we got to the slightly vexed area of how do you collaborate up and down supply chains and maybe even involving retailers. And I asked a question about retailers and why, when I was involved with Elupeg, were the FMCG companies resistant to the idea of collaboration with retailers and I'm joined again by Tom Wansiedler and Paul Martin and Paul goes in very quickly for an immediate answer to that question. With good reason right if you look at the logistics providers and you look at their margins um, you know why do skilled people go work for you know biopharmaceutical companies and and uh, CPG companies because there's money there they're making money I mean they're, they're paying the talent um, there aren't that there isn't that opportunity necessarily through a lot of the logistics uh, uh, market um, because the margins are so thin that they actually don't pay that, that they have a lot of shortages when it comes to things like drivers um, and could, could help that way. So I, I think it's also because of poor management inside logistics and maybe they need to collaborate a bit more as an industry to preserve you know, a reasonable margin for the services and the importance of the services they provide. But the only way they can, I feel the only way they're likely to be able to to maintain or increase their margins is by increasing their efficiency, which means needing to optimize better, which means needing more visibility, which means needing more collaboration. Otherwise, they're stuck in a downward cycle of always being pushed for lower prices and and higher service. Or better selling the value-added services like sustainability, like garbage reduction, so that they can play more on the value drivers and do a better job of positioning that versus going out there and just competing against each other on price. Yeah. I mean, where I would um, really, really sort of head to this, it is, I, I do believe in a fairer deal for logistics service providers and where I would get to, I, I think they can achieve it. I also look at quite often the sourcing processes. I just wonder, you know, in all cases, what is the value add of frequent going to tender by shippers into logistics service providers? For me, it has to be for a strategic reason rather than I just want to test the market. And what I think I would rather do is on the commodity side of logistics, so what it costs to move a truck from A to B or what it costs to uh, get some forklift trucks or what, whatever, whatever the element is, 
I'd rather get the logistics service provider to take a very open palm approach and say, look, we're here to run this service for you, you know? And the role then should be focused about, okay, how can we actually create value within there? Now, that's Malcolm's ideal world. And um, I'm trying my, my best across a number of clients in order to be able to push in that direction and encourage people to go there. Because, again, in those hills, there's gold buried rather than a continuous churn of meaningless activity. It's a balancing act because, you know, collaboration comes at the expense of competition. They're not necessarily, they don't necessarily work together. Um, if I'm really invested and committed to you and we're willing to work through these pieces, you know, then I'm more likely to invest in that relationship. If you're constantly out there competing my business, it undermines my certainty that I'm going to have this business yep. and how am I going to invest in improving it when you're constantly out there competing that. It's oftentimes competition and collaboration work against each other. Not always, they would have to, but, but oftentimes it does. It, it's a balancing force, but I would also actually argue that where you find great collaborative fit, uh, whether it be between an LSP, an LSP and a shipper, or any of the elements in the vertical of a shipper, um, I would turn around and say, that's a wonderful sign uh, that says, well, maybe there should be some merger or acquisition activity going on there. Because most of the time, people go and buy something without actually understanding whether or not it fits and whether or not the promise they're going to make to their shareholders about achieving added shareholder value through, uh, through rationalization and optimization. I just wonder how many promises of those are kept. And from my reading, not that many. Well, I think, Tom, I can relate to that, uh, right? We could have come together um, back in those days. And you look at the technology market is very fragmented from the TMS to the warehouse management systems to, you know, the spin analysis to the, the RFP to the contract management side of things. There are all different systems. And we see in, in these markets that folks have tried to put them together, right? Uh, there are large TMS providers that have had tried to add sourcing to the mix, um, you know, to, but because of the niche aspect of sourcing being something that is used across everything, you know, all commodities, not just transportation, that it's a, a promise that's been difficult to sort of fulfill. Um, and we've seen lots of fits and starts of these things trying to come together um, to oftentimes ill effect. And the market loses and the end buyers lose because these things, these systems are not connected. I, I do think that what, what I've seen in the market, particularly in the, the 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 purchasing managing management side is that where there has been consolidation the end result has in in many cases been less than the sum of the parts because the really good piece that was the reason for the the larger of the two merging gets drowned out in whatever was the offering of the of the bigger party and too often, you're really losing the innovation that was the reason for the merger in the first place. Yeah, a lot of that goes back to the data. So sort of bring it back into the data foundation, right, is that the data that's important to a TMS um, may, may not be enough for you to go out there and run a robust e-sourcing process. So then mm -hmm. now you've got to go out there and how am I going to enrich that data so that I can go out to the market, you know, with a much more meaningful piece because... My TMS doesn't house that information because it's not important to the activities they're doing there. And so again, that having that holistic sort of data view of things, things flow down there and they're not ready to be used by the next downstream system or step. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? You know, therefore, that is a TMS. This is existing in a world whereby change of supply never occurs. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I'm sorry, software provider, go and have a damn good talk to yourself and actually realize uh, that you need to apply a degree more reality in terms of what you're doing. Um, the other key element within here is that, you know, we, in terms of the trip of sustainability, there is a, you know, a big potential in terms of, okay, could we actually plan things better and make it better? And the other argument there is also within, well, if you want to attract people into an industry, make the jobs more attractive. And wages are only is only part of that. And so, you know, I always look at it and say, uh, how can we actually create attractive jobs? Because back in the day when I was running fleets on my own, I would talk to my drivers and I would understand who was having a family problem and needed to be close to home, who was having a family problem and wanted to be away from home. Uh, generally, it was all around family problems. And, you know, you'd have to, um, you know, go and give uh, due counsel and care as far as these people are concerned on that. But you had a knowledge of what worked for them. There isn't a single TMS that does that, in my view. I find that fascinating. You know, one of the key elements that you've got, how many of our business systems seek to motivate and inspire? Well, also the mundane. So if you could automate the mundane so that you can free people up to go out and do this more relationship-based work, yep. um, that's a good use of technology. So if, if you know, yeah. I'm constantly pushing the same paper, I'm constantly faxing this, I'm constantly doing repetitive tasks that can be automated, which so are littered with in the industry, we can automate those with technology and free you up to do more of those relationship pieces. That's a much more attractive job. But then there is a duty then to turn around and say that poor old Johnny or Janet, who's uh, been uh, in the office, uh, shuffling papers, doing faxes, doing all of this, that and the other. Um, somebody has to give them a career track. Somebody has to give them a, an encouragement to say, uh, an openness to say, OK, I need to retrain. And also within that, there's got to be a capability. So a lot of, let's say, investment in automation that I see, uh, all well and good, the business makes some money, but what are you actually going to do to the people that perhaps don't have the capability of doing anything more than what they do or don't, didn't want to? Now, that is, all right, we can't solve every single uh, problem within humanity, but I'd, I'd almost like to see that as at least a factor that was under some level of consideration. I completely agree. I think one of the, the concerns I have about the, the expansion of tools like, based on AI is that they will, I mean, they, the, the most immediate things that we see are where they're being used for substitute communication. So rather than talking to a person, you're talking to an AI bot. Well, people are actually really pretty good at communicating with other people and they do it generally at a level that people enjoy, engage, get value from. Why not use AI for the things that don't add value to the interaction between people? Yeah, but I also say that I'll go and put AI, machine learning, any level of analytical or programming into a big box, and I'll just call it my smart box. And um, you know, I'm, what I'm saying is that why are we asking the dumbest questions of my smart box? Yeah, that's that's my that's my key for, that's my key frustration. And I would say people that are looking for innovation and what stacks really should begin to look at sort of low code and no code platforms um, to support your business to, to the point that you're making now. With the point that Tom made uh, um, in an earlier session around flexibility and the component nature of of the solution design. We're not trying to build you know one solution that's going to fit all, but you're providing optimization AI these components. And that uh, as a discipline, buying organizations, shippers, LSPs need to make that IT low-code, low-code configuration capability 
something that they bring in to the point of the jobs. Hey, you understand how the business works. Now take these components of, of technology and put it together in a way that can help us automate things. And so now I'm configuring the robots and configuring the automation um, as a job, um, you know, something of the future. I'm not a programmer, so I'm not saying go back to school to become programmers. Um, yeah. What programmers are creating these tools that you can now put together in a component module point of view because you understand the business process um, and not code at, at that sort of that, that level. And so I think that's an opportunity in the future. And technology buyers really should be kind of look at some of those low code, no code. Um, with the advice also being that there are more generic tool sets to look at, but there's also a lot of very domain-specific low-code, no-code platforms to look at as well, especially in the procurement domain. My other thought within that would be, what we have is that there is a cost that has to be met. And so if somebody doesn't have a job and we can't find them a job, <laughs> then they're going to have to be supported somehow. And that support generally comes from the government. And the only way that the government is going to be able to support is by tax. And it will tax. And so therefore, there's a sort of circular argument back in terms of when you're looking, it's a bit like the total cost of ownership. Um, you know, it is, is the true cost saving represented? And you, perhaps that's an impossible stretch. And I, I, I do get that. I do get that sometimes business is imperfect and it is in a competition and it is doing this in order to survive and then you know, clearly to grow. And I get that. Uh, but I'm, I'm just perhaps postulating that with smarter technology, can't we get smarter answers? Yes, I would implore listeners um, to uh, look up a book by Jeremy Rifkin, R-I-F-K-A-N, it's called The End of Work. Very smart. Uh, I think he was Harvard, MIT, um, both came out and wrote um, a very conjectural oriented piece around, you know, what were to happen to humans if we no longer had to work. And he goes through a lot of the economic repercussions, um, the socioeconomic repercussions, but it's a, a fascinating sort of, uh, uh, you know, what if kind of read at a, a very intellectual level. So very sort of deep um, thought went into sort of a lot of conjecture. That's going on to my Kindle now. Um, yeah, I, I like that because these are some of the difficult questions that you have. What is the, what is the point of, and you know, yeah. as a leading species, what is, what is our point? Yeah. What are the point of the activities that we have? Um, because it's all interconnected, but, uh, yeah, perhaps that is a little bit of a rabbit hole that maybe for another day, I, I think that would be an interesting <laughs> philosophical discussion to have. Um, the, the sort of final element of this is that if we're looking at how things are powered, the motive power, that's changing, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're, we're going for electrification of trucks. And you know, if I if I sort of look at the way it has with cars, I mean, initially you've got very, very expensive and very low range um, then to something that's sort of okay and then finally you're beginning to get something that is middling expensive and quite a sufficient range and so maybe from you know 35 40 miles of a G whiz whatever it was called and then maybe coming it to 500 miles to uh, the best of Tesla and others um, BMW actually now and Mercedes now beginning to get ahead into head into that and then within trucks, um, you're going to go through a different development path. But then there's still that car one was perhaps over 10 years um, that you were that you were seeing that happen. And within trucks, it's probably going to go in a similar way. Uh, but all of this is against a background of saying, do we have the uh, charging infrastructure in place? Uh, so uh, I mean, charging as in charge the batteries rather than, well, it's probably the same thing, dollars into your battery. Um, but you yeah, it is a period of change. 
And so it would be, what were your thoughts in terms of, okay, if you're looking at sourcing logistics and what the future is going to be, what, where's your mindset? Because there's a different cost base at the moment. I mean, an electric truck is you know approximately four times the cost and all right, production volumes increase, but there's a fundamental in terms of the cost of batteries that lies behind it. And because of the battery tech, it generally tends to be a couple of tons heavier and so therefore arguably less payload, although we've just increased the payload level in the UK for electric trucks. But you know, what are your thoughts in terms of that as far as challenges? No, I mean, my my deep and abiding hope is that hydrogen wins, but that's mm-hmm. that's me me being the man in the uh, <laughs> man in the corner by himself, really. No, you're not. I think that the technical advantages of a, of a hydrogen-based economy are superior, but uh, at this point, it doesn't seem to be developing yet anywhere near the rapidity of of electric-based. For some good reasons, some less good reasons. But I think the, the the interesting dynamic is going to be the impact that it's going to have on logistics companies in that they're going to need to find a way to pay for that because in the not-too-distant future, they're going to be told that they have to convert. And that's going to have to drive a different philosophy about how do they change their profit profile? Because at the moment, if you're told you have to buy a vehicle that, as you say, is four times more expensive that there's more uncertainty about your route planning because you have to not plan where your destination is, but where your charge points are, it's a very different sort of game. And they're, they're going to need to think about it very differently. Yeah. I think change management is one big component. So I think folks so many sourcing point of view should start to look at the change is inevitable. And so, you know, I would suggest from a resourcing point of view, go out there and source it the way you've sourced it before or you think is appropriate for the here and now. But begin to weave in the elements of what you think are changes in the future and begin to sort of gather that information so that you can stay ahead of that. If it's for no other reason that the baselining or gathering information or intelligence about that, but begin to sort of see, you know, what are those options? What do the hydrogen look like? What do my electric options look like? What if I were, you know, to insist that logistic providers change tires, <laughs> things of that nature, where they can begin to sort of approve things. But I would begin to model those changes now from a planning perspective. Um, so that would uh, 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 be sort of a big area for things right now. So I would say that we've been buying in a relatively, in comparison, you know, from the for the technology that we are using to move things around, so technology and the engineering has been all right. There, there have been changes to it, so we've either made things uh, lighter to get more payload, and then we have to make it more fuel efficient, and then we have to make it less emissive, and so we improved emission standards within the. Then we maybe had a bit of a focus on driver comfort, but not so much in Europe. You know, I think you folks in the States have got it right. You know, I always look at somebody with a sleeper cab in the UK and then some of the big rigs that you've got over there, and he's basically got you know a mobile home on the back of his truck. I'm thinking, well, okay, if you want to make a job that's more attractive, go and do something like that here and maybe give up a bit of payload for it because um, most of the payload you're not using. Yeah. Because the the other key factor is that I would postulate that I think fifty percent of trucks are not fully loaded, whether it be in terms of running out of cube or running or running out of weight capacity within there. So, you know, could you be a little bit smarter and more generous within that? But that 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 that's sort of rambling on. But it is a changing environment, and we've not in terms of the engineering, and we've not had that before in terms of a logistic sourcing environment to anywhere near the same extent. And I think a key to that too would be from the sourcing point of view. To 
if we get back to the sourcing side of things, would be looking at your supplier suppliers and maybe driving some of that innovation, like you're talking about. Like, you know, are is there better equipment that your logistics providers can be buying? What are their options as far as that goes? Would I be willing to help them offset the increase in price, you know, with a higher tariff uh, online if it helps me achieve sustainability goals? If it helps me improve the industry? And there are many companies that are willing to sort of invest in improving the overall supply network. You know, in order to gain other benefits, even if the benefits are more competition. But I think getting, you know, sort of deeper into the supply chain, looking from any sourcing point of view, not just to your suppliers, what they're offering is, but what are their options um, as far as innovation, as far as um, suppliers go as well? Absolutely. Um, I, I think the, the base factor as well is it's going to be a changing of capability. So by capability, it will mean range. Whenever you're looking at the moment, it's so easy for a truck to refuel. Yeah, it's a few minutes. And if I want it to go a bit further, then it's easy to refuel or I can put some bigger tanks on it if I if I, if I want to hedge my bets and uh, get the cheaper fuel in there. Uh, that's relatively easy to do. It's almost like an afterthought. Uh, whereas now it's going to be different. You know, you could argue, well, I could do this with trailer exchange. Uh, I could do this with more cross dock. Um, and maybe you should because it might make nicer jobs for drivers anyway. Um, yeah, certainly in terms of the charging station, high-speed charging. I mean, okay, if you've got a battery that weighs a couple of tons in order to, uh, how long is that going to take to charge? Um, what is going to be the number of probably megawatts you're going to have to have available in order to be able to charge these at any rate that is appreciable. And uh, you, th- th- these, these are things that fascinate me. Well, and if you look at that scale too, is that improving the environmental impact or is it, you know, if you've got all these extra batteries and you're swapping out batteries, you know, they need to be manufactured, yeah. you know? And so does the overall equation still make sense for what you think are the value drivers? And so back to the sort of value things. There we go. There's a, there's a whole lacking of information because generally when we're looking at CO2 emissions and sustainability, we do it looking firmly in the rear view mirror and our modern ERP, TMS, WMS, and whatever other systems we're using in business uh, aren't actually factoring that in. And, um, you know, I, I think for a future view, they need to. But um, maybe I'm just a lonely voice uh, in terms of that. But why wouldn't you? But that is why I mean that that is why I'm uh, I'm a fan of hydrogen because the engines last longer, the fuel is easier to to create and transport. It isn't as polluting when you create it. You can move it in a vehicle that's using it, so it's as a, a much better long term solution. And you can refuel a vehicle in the same time it takes to refuel a petrol or a diesel vehicle. Yeah, and you can also consider fuel cell technology as well, so it doesn't need to necessarily be an internal combustion engine. So yeah. It, it, yeah, I, I, I guess it then is, well, how are you creating the hydrogen? Exactly. And that, you know, can you create enough? But the argument then would be that, well, if ever you're looking, you, you've got to look at energy production more like a harvest now. So when the sun's out, you're generating electricity and then you need to generate as much as you can and use it for electrolyzing water into hydrogen. Similarly, if it's windy or you've got a lot of waves going on, that's what you would, um, that, 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 that is what you would look to do. Um, and you, but the the key questions are: Can you get enough? Not yet. Not yet. But it is what would it take to get enough? Is well, you know, they they you know, the, the, these are the unfortunate questions that bother me on occasion. Yeah, I I, I then get my uh, virtual cigarette packet out and begin to sketch ideas on the back of it. I mean, look, what more do you have to add for the future? What are your future thoughts for sourcing of logistics? Well, I also think you've got to put the generational slice on it. 
right? If you're talking about the future, we're talking about sort of a shift in demographics, right? Yep. Um, so I do think you probably start with the consumers and begin to look at what's the nature of the demand and how is that going to shift? Um, and if you start to look at, you know, the younger generations, you know, they're putting an emphasis on a lot of different things than the old folks do, right? So I think the consumer expectations are going to shift. And then based on that, you're going to see that sort of trickle down, right? Retailers are going to have to address that different demand piece. They're going to ask the suppliers to do the same. And so it trickles down um, sort of relative to that. So um, I do think if you want to look at the future of sourcing, you're going to have to look at that sort of demand and how that's going to shift generationally speaking from the, the, the current power base to, you know, what is going to be the, the populace. Because, you know, that younger generation is reaching, at least here in the States, near a majority. Now, then we're going to see that we're seeing that affect our politics. We're seeing that affect sort of our markets, and we're seeing that sort of affect, uh, um, especially the product selections that we have and the expectations. I think that generational shift is also likely to be seen in the in the supply end, where you're getting a, a new generation of people moving into management who've grown up with technology, who aren't intimidated by it who see the benefit and the value of it, and who can see the future with it. And I think that's going to open a lot of doors that have been really tough to to try to open in the the last 20 years. I mean, um, I I do have an absolute sense that the younger generations come through are well-rounded. They're different to uh, perhaps uh, my own generation. They've got more challenges. They're aware of more challenges. Um, They've got incredible amounts of data available to them but it's almost like too much there's a glut whereas uh, when I was a kid it was a poverty of data it was go down to the library learn the geodesimal system and see how you can go with that um, but it's yeah for me I, I, I think the you know, I, I have a great deal of hope that they um, they will have uh, the ability to make more rounded more rounded decision based on fuller information than perhaps we had, or, or certainly it removes that excuse. That's where I would, that's what I would, uh, I would really like to see. But I'm determined to become Schrodinger's pensioner, so that I am both young and old at the same time. Because I've I've always felt like a an octogenarian trapped in a younger person's body, and I'm I'm just you know traveling to an ultimate fate of uh, my body being the same age as my head. But um, hey, how? I think that's absolutely right. Um, what I what I get from, from my kids and the, the people around them is they, they look to my generation, your generation, and, and say, you've created a mess. You're going to leave it to us to clean up. Something's got to change. So they get the motivation for why it has to be done differently. Yep. And I think that is... If there's going to be any single driver that makes the change happen, it, it that's what it's going to be. Sort of looking at it, and I would say what was in my generation, I remember, fog, smog. <laughs> um, so we've got to sort of look at things. Um, we've got to look at things like the Clean Air Act in the UK. Um, so you couldn't burn anything anymore and then move to uh, slightly cleaner versions, but still uh, emitting CO2. Uh, really out there, the improvements in vehicle emissions, the introduction of catalysts, the removal of lead from fuel. Um, you know, All of this was in some way progress, but I know it's not enough and it never is enough. And so each level of generation wants to push for something that is cleaner. It is, 
it's strange, isn't it, that you know you you begin to actually see this and. Um, I would like to have this sort of idealistic avatar-like view of the world whereby we're living more at one with nature, but whether or not that can be achieved is uh, is another matter, but I still hope. So I think we're just about all talked out and I, I'm sort of reviewing, um, you know, the contents of my uh, Island of Opportunities Lost and I see a whole number of things. I mean, you know, I, I say that perhaps we've not made full utility of a much more intelligent way of buying logistics. I feel sad that the LSPs have had the profitability impacted because they didn't fully embrace this. I see a whole lump of sustainability and the you know, the ability to actually do things in a cleaner and cleverer way uh, has maybe been you know, sort of left on the island. Perhaps see that the ability to make fuller, more rounded decisions in terms of what is right for an organisation and how to engage with has been maybe a little bit lost as well. So I, I, I think it's that you know, knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing, there's a little bit of um, you know that within there, but I think where the hope is is it, it's sort of interesting that you start with something that was I, I think the ambition was quite grandiose and maybe it was an unfair expectation that an industry that has until of late not covered itself with glory in terms of the amount of innovation it is actually delivered. I mean it has its sparks of innovation and then it just sort of settles and doesn't do much. Um, there has been some progress, you know, um, you know, for that I am very, very grateful. In all of this, it's given me a career and that's absolutely fine. So if you were talking to the future, what recommendations would you give? Well, I would say, you know, if you look at it, it's an exciting time to be in e-sourcing, right? Uh, um, there's a professor who works at a consulting company called Kearney, K-E-A-R-N-E-Y. Her name is Dr. Epstein and uh, she's a futurist. Um, so I uh, would implore you to look, she's got a uh, eye charts of a rural spider chart, but it reflects just how fragmented the technology landscape is uh, in e-sourcing, how much innovation and outside investment has gone into it. So it's a very exciting time there. And so my advice to the folks, you know, currently into the future is don't be afraid to fail. But if you look at the current technology landscape, um, or maybe don't be afraid to change, um, is that uh, a switching cost of software as a service is insignificant compared to the upside when you get it right. Um, because you're not hosting it, you're not having a big IT footprint yourself, uh, that you are paying on a monthly subscription basis. So the switching costs are sort of insignificant uh, when it comes to technology. And interoperability, that is the exchange of the data between the systems, is also an insignificant investment for technology companies these days. It's such a standard operating procedure for technology companies to build data in and out. Um, that uh, That's another reason where you can be kind of move away from you know, your ERP uh, provider providing every regulatory solution and begin to experiment with sort of the best of breed options because you, you can switch and you get it wrong. It's all run if you get it right. And the interoperability of putting these systems together, um, you can make something that is truly differentiated for your business and have that sort of flexibility and not buy a cookie cutter uh, off the shelf product from an ERP provider. Absolutely agree. And for you, Tom? I think, and, and and this is an absolute shout out to LUPEG, it's collaborate. I think if you if you try to live in a bubble, to operate in a bubble, and to try to make profit in a, in a bubble, you're leaving too much on the table. I think the opportunities for either deep collaboration or even soft collaboration are 
too good to miss and you should not be afraid of it. I'd certainly agree with that and I'd also go and point at the logistics service providers themselves and say, again, there's gold in them, there are hills. Yep. Um, just by actually looking at what you're, what you're doing really what you're doing already. I, I, I think my, my, you know, my sort of hope is, is that, look, um, I think I've not seen anything smarter, and I, I want somebody to disabuse me of this, but I don't think I've seen any smarter way of uh, solving the problems that we solved 21 years ago. I've not seen it since, and I've done a hell of a lot since then. And I'm not saying that I'm, I'm necessarily a weather vane for, let's say, logistics sourcing, but I know a bit. And what I would say is that you look at the scale of the logistics industry, and you know, it it is into trillions, and yet it's only billions that are actually having some level of designed for the logistics industry uh, sourcing platforms. And so, you know, the, the hope for me is that there is there is the ability for this to do better. I think also, I mean, when I speak to logistics services providers about use of e-sourcing, here's one of the things that you'll hear. Oh, no, not another e-sourcing event. We hate them. And the reason that they hate them is that the uh, the wonderful operators of the procurement sausage machine, as I call it, so the procurement sausage mach- machine is we'll run as many tenders as I possibly can in order to meet my year-end target. Um, we, we, we have cost down targets only, maybe a little bit in terms of cash. Uh, cost avoidance isn't considered and value creation isn't, and neither is more bangs from a book. That really isn't considered as a target generally within the majority of procurement functions within here. And they they run their sausage machine events. And the real difficulty within this is that the success of what we did was based on the development and the contemplation, both with you as technology providers, but also by by you know, the part of team the, t- the team that I was working with in Heinz to work out what it is that we want. And if you don't actually think about that, then you're missing a trick. And then the next phase is how really interactive and supported is your negotiation? Because if it is simply, I'm going to send you a request for information, an ERFI, uh, please fill this form in for me. Well, I feel really motivated. I feel really engaged. And here's a load of data and go and give the answer. You haven't sold the buy. And then even more than that, you're not having what I would say. I mean, remembering that these are multi-million, multi-tens of million on occasions, multi-hundred of millions of, uh, worth of uh, sourcing that has been done. And you can't be bothered to pick the phone up and talk to your potential supplier. I mean, come on. And I'm sorry, you know, I'm I'm going to accuse myself. I've had to do it in the past because that is that was the agenda within the business. They were that desperate to save money is uh, I don't care about the quality, run the sausage machine and get me the cash. Well, don't be too surprised then if you drive appalling behaviours within responding behaviours within logistics service providers. And so my summary in terms of a recommendation is... Um, you know, perhaps be informed by the past. And by the way, there is got to be a better way of doing this. And um, I'm I'm pretty sure that, you know, if you want to find out more, I mean, by all means, speak to me, by all means, speak to Tom, and by all means, speak to Paul, because uh, there's a fair bit of knowledge around this table that, uh, well, it certainly even goes well beyond my own modest abilities as well. So look, any concluding thoughts, Paul, Tom? 
I would reinforce what you said earlier, Malcolm, which is uh, I think it's really important on the lot versus need uh, dynamic. Uh, so I think that really sort of resonated with me, you know, and that, you know, models that uh, um, begin to put value um, sort of around the lot versus need the differentiation. If I don't need it right away, then maybe I get a discount um, um, on something like that. And so we began to to put those incentives in place market-wise to uh, um, bifurcate the what versus need sort of aspect um, and get more detail on the data as far as that's. Thanks, Paul. And I think mine would be picking up on pieces of what you've each said about lack of fear and reducing your planning horizon. Everybody knows the risk is in the, the longer term your planning horizon is, the greater the risk. Make it as short as you can possibly commercially operate and the risk goes out. Therefore, you can get better price, better service, and better feedback in terms of whether you're delivering for your customers. And I think the answer that I have to that, which I've always uh, adored the concept, which was always my repost to people further up in manufacturing is, please create me a machine with infinite capacity and infinite flexibility that can make everything when I need it. And then I wouldn't need this warehouse behind me and we could just actually, you know, back the trucks up and actually get perfectly formed and, um, you know, sequenced uh, loads out to our customers. And that for me is, you know, go and ask for the impossible. Well, that's what the combined solution of, of TransLogistic and Combined Net was in software terms. Infinite flexibility whenever you wanted it. <laughs> Gentlemen, look, um, as ever, it's been a pleasure to, to have this discussion. I hope the listener has found it interesting. It is an area that utterly fascinates me. Um, it's been uh, the work of decades on my own behalf in terms of really uh, looking at this. I have two gentlemen with me that I respect totally, and um, they both had amazing careers in their own right, and thanks to that. And I have the pleasure of working within an industry that I absolutely adore. So we're going to conclude the episode. But and thank you for for uh, listening. Remember, you can access all of our logistics podcasts on logisticscollective.com. Please like and follow, and we'll inform you when the next episode are being published. We also publish on all of the common podcast platforms, including Spotify. Gentlemen, thanks ever so much. Thank you, it's been fun. You can get in contact by email, podcast at logisticscollective.com or leave a voice message on our website, logisticscollective.com. The podcast is a production by Laguru.